Austin. So welcome to ANC. A um, couple of things just to throw at you. Uh, we got a lot going on. Keep Brandon and Trey in your prayers. They're riding motorcycles from here to Austin. I mean, from here to Atlanta. That wouldn't be very far. From here to Atlanta. Um, it's a little further than Austin. They're going to be on the road for the next eight days. So uh, if you need anything, send email to me. Because um, if you email Trey, he's not going to respond. He doesn't respond anyway, but he would respond even slower than normal. So um, keep them in your prayers. Um, they, those guys, there's a lot riding on those bikes because if those guys come back in pieces, we're in big trouble around here. So just thought you should know that. Um, the good news is I didn't lose my sermon notes. I actually have a little plan now. I, I text them to about seven different people. I email them to about ten different people besides that. And that way we can, if you weren't here two weeks ago, you wouldn't know. We did this with no sermon notes, but that, that was a lot of fun. Um, question for you. Ever notice how counterintuitive God is? There's a transition, right, from joking about nonsense. Do you ever notice how literally counterintuitive the things he does can be? Does that ever strike you sometimes? And after two or three things, you're like, oh, yeah, I should have remembered. Yeah, you do it all weird. We're waiting for something, and it comes from a different angle. The way he gets things done in the earth is nothing short of bizarre. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Paul will eventually come to say it this way in Corinthians. He chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world to confound the wise, which is another way of saying he picks really bad teams and he does a really amazing things. Yeah. Of course, this is good news for us since we are not the most spectacular people in Austin, Texas, sorry. We're not the most gifted, the most talented, or the most disciplined bunch of people in the game, and yet God has chosen us to get something done. Interesting, the original 12, run the tape in your mind real quick, weren't the most spectacular leaders either, were they? Or just people in general. Way too many ways to poke holes in the original 12 for us not to feel some kind of a comfort when we look around and say, really, you're going to do that with this? Think about promising a barren couple that their descendants would outnumber the stars of the heaven and then doing nothing about that until after they're 100. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I think of the warrior, one of the great judges in the Old Testament period where where God says, I'm going to deliver you from the hand of the oppressor, so take 300 people and some clay pots and a trumpet and a candle. And they're thinking, mm-hmm, and whose army? Think about choosing a sheep herder, the youngest of a whole group of brothers to lead a nation. Counterintuition, right? Think about how ridiculous it is to send a baby to do a king's work. Jesus himself shows up wrapped in humility and in literally dependence on Mary. Think about that. Think about how ridiculous it is to leave a sociopolitical situation almost completely untouched, simply whispering, you belong, and love conquers all in the end into the ears of some marginalized people, and that being your plan to change the world. Does that make sense? Think how ridiculous it is to pick us, a janky little church on the south side of Austin that doesn't have a home, shacking up in the Cafetorium, some of y'all went to school here, which is, must be so creepy. I can't even imagine that, what that would feel like. Nice big grizzly bear on the back wall, right? Things of how to go see your, your, uh, your guidance counselor. Think about God doing anything through a group of people like us. If you've been walking with God for more than a minute, you know how counterintuitive he can be. Paul admits 
that the Jews were looking for signs while the Gentiles were seeking wisdom. But Jesus delivers a scandalous, almost impossible to accept image of loss, of death, of defeat, of humiliation, of a criminal's punishment. This is his answer. When they're seeking signs, they're seeking wonders, and they want something that associates with greatness, and he comes right in under the radar. Love literally hanging from a tree instead of power. Let that sink in. God chose you to confound the systems of the world is the message Paul will eventually deliver. All of us, right? Simple. No frills. Unremarkable you. Ever wonder why? What's the purpose of that? Why does God pick the wrong people and put them on the team and do amazing things? 1 Corinthians one twenty eight says the following. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. Raise your hand if that's you. To nullify the things that are And for the purpose of verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. There's a purpose in the teams God picks. We're going to click through a couple of things in the middle portion of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to land in 1 Corinthians 12. Don't go there yet. But but this is the reason why he has gifted you uniquely. Nobody has your chops. Nobody can do what you can do. Nobody else sees exactly what you see. And the reason God has given you the gifts and abilities he's given you is not for you, but for the good of the community that you inhabit and the system that you're part of. It's about much more than just you. Have you figured that out by now? And there's some counterintuition going on. Because why you? Why me? It doesn't make sense. Paul's going somewhere with this letter. He's going to eventually end up delivering his his mechanics of the community of faith, which are love, and after that, it's love, and then after that, it's when you've worked all that through, then it's love at the end, and he's going to get there, but he's going to go through a couple of concepts first. It's all about Christ crucified is what he's going to say. It's not our elegance, and it's not our wisdom. It's Christ crucified. Our gifts, he will say, eventually don't originate with us. They come from somewhere. From where? From God. Our gifts aren't meant for us to enjoy alone. They're for the whole world to benefit from. And God is building a new humanity, and he's going to do it by deploying us to bless all peoples of the world. This is the movement that Paul is taking us through. Chapter 2, verse 1, makes the case that it's only through the mind of Christ that we can even know these things of God. It doesn't even make sense except through the gift of the mind of Christ. It's not a human wisdom. It's not elegance that we can perceive. It's not big ideas and lofty truths. It's the mind of Christ that matters. Question. We always like to ask questions around here. What exactly was the message that Paul was delivering to the world? Somebody tweet it. What was he saying? Can somebody boil that down? There's no wrong answer. Christ crucified. For all. What else is he saying? Think about about who he is. He's a Jew's Jew sent to where? The Greco-Roman world. Brilliant. Counterintuitive. Makes perfect sense, right? What's his message going to be? What's he, what's, what is he arguing for? This is how love works. Is how love works. Okay. Anyone else? Evening the playing field. Okay, I like where you're going with that. Somebody dig deeper there. What is he specifically after? What is he proposing? Who said Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles, right? Watch. In a nutshell, Paul's message was that the universal nature of the sacrifice of Christ was for all people in all places revolutionary at the time, specifically that the Gentiles would be grafted into God's redemptive work in the world, that God would reveal himself to all humankind, not just the Jews. This was the message that was soundly rejected by Jesus' contemporaries. This transnational post-tribal message of love and forgiveness was somehow 
shockingly less than what they were expecting. And they didn't accept it. You know, Paul was a trained rhetorician. You know what that means? He was trained in speech. And he knew how to use sarcasm. I love this. In chapter 3, Paul gives the Corinthians a little dose of snark. He literally says something along these lines, but y'all wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. Oh, you baby, silly, fickle Corinthians. After all, you're just silly, petty people dividing over things that you think are more important, and you're not living in love and unity. You're still dividing into factions, Paul would say. In other words, what Paul is trying to say is this. You're not living in unity and love. You're being petty and divisive over trivial things. In verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul basically says, you don't have to pick a faction. You don't have to side over your litmus test belief, the favorite thing you like to hook your wagon to, the thing that to you means more than any of the other things. He's going to say we're all on the same team. Apollos, Peter, Paul, Jesus, it's the same team. Everything is ours, says Paul, and if we are in Christ, we have it all. Okay, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 12. Let's read a couple of verses here, and we're going to talk about the, the, the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. This will be on the screen. Just as a body through one has many parts, though one has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ. For we, all, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Verse 14. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should... I hate talking about feet right now. Now, if the foot should say... Not even funny, Paul. Couldn't you say something? Elbow. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye... Where would the sense of hearing be? And I just imagine a bin of Lego parts, all the same part, right? How's that cool? It's not, is it? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't... Stop it. I don't need you. I actually do need you. I want to go running like now. Verse 22, on the contrary, though, that's not actually in the Bible. Just, you guys are like, man, I didn't know that there was running in the Bible. Hang with me. Hang with me. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment at all. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Verse 25, and we're getting somewhere. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, Paul's going to say, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helping, guidance, and different kinds of tongues. All are apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Of course not. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, Paul says. Love is indispensable. Yet, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And he goes right into 1 Corinthians 13 after this. This is powerful imagery, how it is that parts that are very different and often don't understand each other and sometimes even compete are part of one greater whole. He's painting a picture. He's giving us wide open permission to understand how it is that we are not going to be the same, and yet we're part of the same thing. Now, next week, we're going to talk about sexuality, so get ready. 
This is what sexuality looks like in the new world that God is building through Christ. And we'll tap more into Paul's thinking about the body at that point. But we're going to leave that part aside for now. For now, let's think about the ways each of us represents part of a body. Most of you have no idea what I actually do for a living besides being part of the teaching, preaching, hobbling around team of ANC. It's really a long story how I got to do this, this, this work with my life. But I've designed and implemented a brand new ordination track for the Free Methodist Church. Now, let me, let me unpack that if you don't know what those words mean. Um, I've designed a new set of metrics by which people are uh, seen, identified, where gifts are identified and deployed, and where people are launched into vocational ministry. So anything that happens between the space of, hey, I'm feeling God is not letting me alone, there's something he wants me to do, anything between that point and when you're ordained, when the church assembles and says, we set this person aside for the work of the ministry, all of that space, we've built a tool that kind of slides in there and helps that process move along. But a national initiative to train leaders doesn't accomplish anything unless there are local pipelines of talent and leaders coming out of local churches. Okay? You get what I'm saying? If you work for a national office that says, hey, let's do this, if there's no raw material with which to do that, it's just an initiative. These things come across our desks all the time. So most of what I'm doing now is actually training pastors to look differently at their people and see the gifts of God deployed and deposited in their people. So the shift has gone from Here's where we ought to go. Here's where we can, do, can go based on our history and our DNA to local pastors. Here's what you got to do. Because it never ceases to amaze me how local pastors will blame me for their leadership deficit in their local church. They thought I was hired to fix their church. It's a fun conversation. And they look out at their people and say, I've only got 45 people and none of them are leaders. And I'm like, well, the entire problem is you. Blink, blink. What do you mean me? Mm-hmm. The problem is you're looking at your people wrong. The vision statement that I've been operating under in that capacity with, you know, the, the, bar, the part of my job that's actually the, my primary employment is this. Now listen to this and see if you identify with this. I'm here to build a leadership development culture that sees people, that understands they're designed to be God's calling on their life, right, and equips them to succeed where they're already gifted and where they're already brilliant. Here's, here's the catch. What's God calling you to do? What are you excellent at? Oh, well, it can't be that simple, Jason. No, no, that's not how it works. God calls people like in the shower, I'm pretty sure. And uh, he tells them to do things that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're a rotten preacher, I'm telling you God hasn't called you to preach. And if you hate kids, that's not what God's called you to do. The design is the secret to the understanding the calling of God. And what the church's capacity ought to be is further equipping you to do what you are already brilliant and already equipped to do. Why? Because if I have to tell you what you're gifted to do, then I have to billow air into your lungs and keep you going. There's too many of us to do that. The question is, what are you gifted to do? Where are you already equipped? You know, there's a million Jesuses in the New Testament, and I'm not sure there's ever been a figure in history that has had more written about him than Jesus Christ. But one that I connect with really, really deeply is the one I call Jesus, the seer-in-chief. Let me explain. Think about Jesus, the one who saw Matthew through the lens of tax collector and saw future apostle. Now, no one around him saw that, Jesus knuckles down on table and says, follow me. He saw something different in Matthew. Think about Jesus who saw the woman at the well, not only saw her story, but saw value and dignity in a woman in the middle of the day in the wrong province, in, off, the, tra- off the, the, the tracks, wrong part of town. Jesus saw something in her. The disciples give him a nice reprimand. Hey, bro, don't do that. You're going to wreck our IPO that's coming up in a couple of months. Stocks are going to fall. And Jesus says, nope, this is what's, this is what's up, right? 
Think about the Jesus who saw value in the little children who flocked to him, and the disciples were like, get away, move these kids, no value, get lost. Jesus says, no, 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 you're not seeing what I'm seeing. Think about the Jesus who, in a throng of people, looks into a tree and sees a wee little short man hiding in a tree who had a reputation that was taller than he was, and everyone knew what he was up to. And Jesus saw something in Zacchaeus and says, you come down, you are host today. And Zacchaeus responds with a massive move of repentance and setting things straight. Jesus saw people. Jesus always sees the real beneath the pain. He sees the heart of humankind, as some would come to say in the New Testament. Jesus knew the heart of the Father. He saw the plan of the Father no matter what was going on around him. Jesus was, and I would argue, the ultimate seer of people, the seer-in-chief of people. I love Jesus, the miracle worker. I do, trust me. But to me, the greatest miracle of all that he has ever come to accomplish in my life was stepping into my world and seeing me. How could he have seen me? That's the greatest miracle that I know of. I love Jesus, the teacher, and I've made a life out of trying to figure out what in the world he's trying to say, but the greatest lesson he ever taught me was how to truly see my brother and my sister, how to see myself around the world at six, on the 6 o'clock news, how to see that's my child covered in ash and smoke. Jesus, the miracle worker, he'll, it'll give you everything you need. Jesus, the teacher, you can't possibly exhaust that, but Jesus, the seer of people, is the Jesus that I'm obsessed with. Here's what I want to do here in Austin. I want to create a church that sees people, that truly sees them beyond their outward appearance, beyond their chosen social identity, beyond their marital status, beyond their economic status, beyond their sexual orientation, beyond their anger, their fear, their disillusion, their addiction, their pride, their shame. I want to see people. I want to create a space where people can be seen. I dream of a place where people can be truly seen more than anything else. I want that for us as a church. I've got a couple of theories that this whole thing is built on. They're not complicated, but these guide the work that I've done for the denomination, and increasingly, these are guiding the things that we're doing here at at, at ANC. Number one, everyone is brilliant. Inhale, take a breath. I said that. You're like, you know, you don't know me. I'm average. I wrote the book on mediocre. No, listen to me. Listen to me. Everyone is brilliant. If you cannot mention your name in the same sentence with brilliance, then you probably grew up in the world I grew up in and taught us that it's not nice to think of ourselves that way. But here's what I'm willing to promise you. Your world, your family, your system is begging you to step up and say, I got this because I can do this. Number one, everyone is brilliant at something. Number two, everyone wants to know beyond all other things that that brilliance, that eyesight, that clarity of vision has a role to play on the team, that this great dust-up of redemption that God is doing in the earth today can somehow involve your great brilliance, your great eyesight. Everyone wants to know that. How do I know? You tap that, people come alive. People literally shake off the chains, they get out of the grave, and they're like, There's something to live for. Why? Because that thing you see more clearly than anyone else, the team needs that set of eyes. Despite our differences, remember, we're in the book of Corinthians. There were differences aplenty. Despite our profound differences, and we've got them here at ANC, I don't think there are any evil people, and I don't think there are any non-gifted people. The question is, how do we deploy ourselves to be about the work of the kingdom? It's not going to take a building, guys. It's not going to take a million-dollar property. It just takes a little working together. For Trey's sake, since he's not here, I'm going to use a football analogy. And most of you know I don't like football, but it's got great analogies. If you weigh 127 pounds 
And your right kneecap would kick you right square in the forehead were it not for that goofy little face mask. One ribbed face. You should not line up on the offensive line and expect to last more than a play or two. Why? Because you're a place kicker. What happens to place kickers on offensive lines? That's the snap you hear on the sideline. You better learn quick. If your kneecap can hit your forehead, where to line up on the field and when to stay on the sideline. Likewise, if you weigh a svelte 375 pounds, you can't run more than a few yards, but you can paw, you can grind, and you can push. Don't try to kick that ball through the upright. Your leg won't go there. You're an offensive lineman. Why am I saying this? It's ridiculous. You get my point. We are a body in the words of Paul, and our role is something we've got to find. But you suit up a place kicker, and you put him in place of a quarterback, and you're not going to win a game. Does that make sense? I would love to use soccer analogy, but nobody would understand me. <laughs> Except maybe Juan. Right, Juan? No, not even Juan. Darn, I'm all alone up in here. So here's my question for you, and this is designed to make you sweat, even though it was 42 degrees when we walked in here today. What's your role? What's your role? I'm serious. What's your role? What's your thing? What's your angle? Some of you are hyperventilating right now because you are primarily afraid of that question because you know you don't know. And that's okay. But I'm going to drive it a little harder. What are you on the team to do? Where do you fit on the team? What will your contribution be? Does that make you uncomfortable? It's designed to. It's one of those things that starts at adolescence and will literally grind us into powder until we can figure out a way to answer the question. We watch movies about people who find their lane. We know people who find their lane, and most of us desperately want to know, what's that one thing that only I can do, and how do I make that play? Here's a little bit for you. David Beckham. We got a guy at church named David Beckham. It's really funny. One time he texted me. This is a little aside because we chase rabbits. One time he texted me, and I convinced my daughter that the David Beckham actually texted me. Because on my phone, we're coming back from lunch, and my phone pops up, David Beckham. And it said something. She says, Dad. I'm like, yeah, okay. So the truth is, David Beckham loves Jen Hatmaker. That's believable, right? He watches HGTV. <laughs> David Beckham is a big fan of Brandon. He watches, you know, the Slagles on Family Feud. I don't know. But David Beckham knows who we are. And so secretly, we're not allowed to blow his cover, but he watches our pod- he listens to our podcast, and he loves us. And she's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm like, no, actually, there's just a dude named Dave Beckham in our church. And it's just... <laughs> He's just a dude. But there was this magnificent place on the pitch where Dave Beckham could bend a ball so hard no goalie could stop it. He would kick it so hard that it would, it would go to this corner and all the goalies go left and then it would hook back and then they all try to scramble and go right. He could embarrass the finest goalies in the world and he made a career out of doing that. But there was one place on the pitch where he could do that. Average defender, mediocre center back, horrible if he's trying to tackle someone and take the ball away. But from that point on the field, no one could defend him. No one could defend him. If they drop back to try to cover the angle, he passes it to the next guy, and they just drive up the middle and take a shot. If he stayed where he was good, nobody can defend that ball. That was his place. My question for you today is where's that place on the pitch for you? And how fast can we help you get to know what that place is? My dream for ANC is that we become the kind of place that can help you discover and drop all excuses, drop all other lesser narratives, all limitations, all other shackles that hold you back and allow you to flow freely into that thing that you know you were born to do. False humility, all other stories that say you're a loser, you can't do it, you don't have enough, let it all fall away. What's that thing? I want to create a place where you can pick up on that scent and you can chase that trail. 
What were you designed to do? And it, again, it's not our vision. It's not Brandon's vision. It's because if we call you to something that we see, then it's our job to keep you motivated. And that'll work for about three weeks, and then we're texting you midweek, hey, you're going to do that thing? Uh, well, yeah, actually, I'm out of town. And then it just becomes the text bob and weave, right? We do it all the time. If we call you to our vision, then it's up to us to motivate you. That's not the game of church. That's not what we're here to do. That's not what the body is supposed to do. It's not how it functions. But if I take note of your astonishing brilliance when I see you, when we're out to coffee, when we're hanging out early in the morning as guys, when we're doing what we do, when we're downtown feeding the homeless, when we're having lunch at South Park Meadows, which we're going to do after church today, if I can see you break into that space and everything crackles for you, the greatest gift I can give you is to simply say, I saw you, I saw that, do that again, shoot the ball from there, that's amazing, no one can defend it, nobody's got, those are chops that no one else has, because when you hear those words, deep down inside, your design wants to know that it's for a purpose. This is the argument Paul is making. Quit fighting like you're all supposed to be ears and eyes and feet. Embrace the narrative of the body of Christ that God is raising up all these crazy, weird pieces that don't match. They don't go together. When you snap them together, it creates friction and disagreement. Paul says, let it all fall down. You are a body, and that's greater, that's greater than any one of you can accomplish alone. So if that question unsettles you, and if your heart is pounding right now, because you're resonating with something that I'm saying and you want to believe it's true. Maybe you have no idea what your lane is. Maybe you need some courage to begin to speak what you know it is, but you're not sure those around you are willing to hear you say it. Maybe you picked the wrong major. That never happens in America today, does it? Maybe you thought making a living would be all you really needed to live for, and you get hip deep into that, and you're like, I'm dying. I've got to do something significant with what God has given me. If you identify with this, you're in luck. First of all, you're in the body, and the body is designed to help you figure this out, the body of Christ. But on a different level, plan, I'm planning in the, in the month of November to do a two-week intensive. I know this is a rotten place for commercials, but I think it matters for the church. On November 6th and November 13th, Sunday evenings at my house in Buda, I'm going to gather groups of 12 of you. We'll just take the first 12 that sign up, and if there's more demand, we'll do another group of 12 after that, and we'll just do this until this conversation is fully had among us. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a book together that's going to simply help us discover some language that helps you step outside of yourself and say, doggone it, rely on me right here. Team, I got it right here. Oh, numbers, not me. Administration, nope, not me. Speaking publicly, nope, not me. But this thing, ooh, give me the ball here, watch what happens. It's just going to create some language for you to do that. It's, it's a way, it's a book that you go online and you do a psychometric test. It takes about 25 minutes. It's no big deal. It's not the end game. The end game is you finding language to finally show up and say, I got this one thing. And watching everything else in your life begin to take shape. Now listen, this is not a commercial to get you involved in local church. There's not that much to do at ANC. This is to deploy you for your family system, for the system that you are working in in your employment, for the world that you inhabit, for the teams that you coach, for the teams that you're part of, for the bands that you play in, for those concentric circles of your life. This is a way of stepping in and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to take some ownership because by golly, I got it right here. No shame, no apologies. I don't have to apologize to you. This is my thing. 
God has called me to lead in this space. If you are interested in that, email me fast. That's all I can tell you. And I'm going to build a group, and we'll build another one, and we'll just see what God does. If it's rotten and it deflates, we won't do it again. But I just want to see us deployed. I look out every Sunday morning at the most extraordinary collection of gifted people. It's a mystery to me how it is that we find time to come together on Sunday mornings. If we could all deploy what we can do, just blow the doors off it. Forget about it. Most of us grow up in church. I was talking to you guys from Oregon, pastor's kids. You can always tell because we limp. We got scars on our back. Most of us grow up in churches where if you can preach and you can sing, we know what to do with you. But if you throw pottery, you paint, and you build, nobody has any clue anymore. In the Middle Ages, we would have known what to do with you, but that's fallen out of favor, so we don't know what to do with you. If you can plumb, you can build, you can design, you can administrate the great missing gift of the church today. If you can counsel people, if you can walk with people through incremental steps from addiction back from the edge, these gifts must be deployed or else we will never become what God has called us to be. You better take a deep breath because you're turning blue. What do you think about that? All right, let's band, join me. There's a transition. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to say except that that's my dream for us. That's my dream for me. That's my dream for you. That's my dream for my children. We're looking at colleges. We're talking about, you know, all of these things, and you guys are too, is to find that place where we come most alive. So why don't you join me on your feet? You'll know to do that when the lights go off, right? Now, lights, there we go. Join me on your feet and let's pray. Let's just pray a simple prayer of maybe acknowledgement, maybe, maybe uh, a prayer that just um, speaks as much to us as it does to God. God knows what he's up to. God knows how he's, he's pulling at your heartstrings. But maybe the, the words that we need to say need to align us to that reality. And so let's, let's just pray just a simple prayer. Yes, Lord. Just say that to him. Yes, Lord. Lord, we accept your plan for us and we accept the gifts that we're even afraid of because we've seen their power and we don't want to be the kinds of people that have wounded us in the past with their powerful gifts. We don't want to be this. We don't want to be that. And yet, Lord, you've called us for for specific things to a specific place. We just want to wrap our arms around that and say, God, do what only you can do through that. Lord, so many of my brothers and sisters this morning are not even suited up on the sidelines. They want to be on the team, but they don't know where they fit. And so, Lord, in in that case, I pray you would begin to reveal. Actually, give them courage to see what's already real in their lives. Give them courage to believe that you'll back them up if they step out. If they'll jump the gap, you'll help them land. Give them courage to believe that. And then my prayer, Lord, for this body would be that you would fully deploy us. Fully deploy us in South Austin. So many broken people need to know you love them. So many broken people are never truly seen. Give us your eyes, Lord. If we can see what you see, then we can love how you love. If we can say what you say about the people that you love, which is all people, then those people can be drawn to a place where no shame and no judgment 
creates a space where they can be seen as God has created them. Lord, help us to do that. Beyond our prejudice, beyond our limitations, beyond our judgments, beyond our own ideas, give us your eyes and give us your words for the people that that you're drawing unto you. In your name we pray. Now, those are dangerous prayers. Because unlike, give me, give me a new Harley, Lord, God's going to answer that prayer. He might give you a new Harley. God's going to answer that prayer. That's the deal. To see people the way he sees them, to deal with them the way he deals with them. And that's my prayer.